Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Father, we've barely understood how good it is to know you and more to be known by you. But I pray that through your word this morning, you would awaken in our hearts the reality of what you're doing in us and for us. And I pray that you would awaken us to the truth that this is our Father's world that we live in. Things are as you say they are, and maybe not as we feel them to be. Help us to believe in that way. Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is An Eternal Weight of Glory. And you'll know perhaps that that title is taken directly from our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verses 16 to 18. It's a title that's also similar to a sermon that C.S. Lewis preached about 80 years ago titled The Weight of Glory, and he delivered it in Oxford, England. And the sermon is probably one of Lewis's best-known works. Perhaps the most famous passage from this sermon is in the first paragraph. I'm going to read to you a little bit from that paragraph. He says this, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. Lewis's point is simply this. What we desire reveals who we are. The capacity of our desires and the object of our desires reveal who we are. And for most of us, our problem is not that we desire too much for ourselves, but too little. In, instead of desiring heaven and the things of God, we desire this world only and our own interests. That's why a husband might decide to forsake his marriage covenant to take up with another woman. It's why a person would give up their whole life to, to their work and neglect their family. It's why a student would cheat on a test rather than study 
for the test. It's why someone would choose to believe a lie rather than to believe the truth. In all of these cases, the fundamental problem is that that desire has fixed on some temporal end to the neglect of an eternal end. It's when desire fixates on some good to be gained for this age without any thought of how one might be inheriting the age to come. And so we often find ourselves often not desiring too much but too little. And so people flit about with sinful sex, self-advancement, quests for money and influence or the praise of men. And they would rather have any or all of these things than they would have heaven. And so they give their whole lives away for what will in the end slip through their fingers. They are doing what Jeremiah says. They are hewing for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're building things that will not satisfy them in the end. And the fundamental problem is not that their desires are too great, but too little. They are far too easily pleased. They are perfectly content to play around with mud pies in the slum because they cannot, they don't have the ability to imagine a holiday at the sea. And how many of you, if you were honest, would detect that this is the root of waywardness in your own heart? It's still there. There is something or some person or some achievement that you desperately desire in this age without any thought of what is to be gained in the age to come. If you are content to desire the things that are seen, you will never desire the things that are unseen. And if you cannot desire the things that are unseen, your faith won't survive when the things that are seen fail you. And the things that are seen will fail you. If you haven't already opened up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The last three verses in chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. We've been studying this chapter. We know that Paul's describing his own experience as an apostle. And chapter 4 is nothing if not a laundry list of the ways that the seen things of this life have failed him. His was not a life of creature comforts or of wealth or of ease. His was a life of persecution for the sake of Christ. When Jesus called him, he said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And guess what? Paul is suffering. Paul says in verse 8, I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in my body the death of Jesus. So this was no walk in the park for Paul. It was brutal for Paul. Nevertheless, Paul says that his weak clay vessel is not always going to remain weak because Christ is going to raise up his vessel in glory, it says in verse 14. And so now in the, in the final three verses of the chapter, Paul is going to take a look at three different facets of this eternal weight of glory that God is working inside of him. And here are the three facets, three facets for three verses. He's going to talk about the inward glory in verse 16, the future glory in verse 17, 
and the unseen glory in verse 18. So the first thing is the inward glory. Everybody look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. A reminder again, Paul's still using the first person plural to refer to himself. So when he says, we do not lose heart, again, he means I do not lose heart. He has his own sufferings in view. And so by, when he says lose heart, he means something like to lose motivation in continuing a desirable pattern of conduct or activity. It means to, something like to lose enthusiasm, maybe even to be discouraged. And so Paul's saying, I'm not being discouraged. It's the same expression from verse 1, where he also says that he does not lose heart. And so this chapter ends up being bookended by Paul's declaration that he's not going to be discouraged in the work that God has given him to do as an apostle. Hell or high water, he's going to carry out his ministry no matter the oppression that is thrown his way. How is he able to do that? Well, notice what he says in verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What does Paul mean by outer self and inner self? Let's first of all be clear about what he does not mean by this. He does not mean that your inner self is the real you and the outer self is the temporary physical part of you that's ultimately disposable. That's not what Paul means. Paul believes that we are whole people, body, soul, mind, and spirit. All of that is you, the real you, and God intends to redeem the real you, which means he's going to redeem you, body, soul, mind, and spirit. That's why Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So what I, what I want to kind of clear away here is this popular uh, notion that, you know, some, that p- people think of themselves as bifurcated between their, their body and their soul, the, the visible part of themselves and the invisible part of themselves, and only the, the invisible part is the real you. Paul's not, not talking like that. That's not what he means by this. He's not trying to say that you, the external you is unimportant while the inner part of you is, is all important. So that being the case, why would he be, be describing himself as an outer self which is wasting away and an inner self that is being renewed? The reason he's doing this is because he's trying to explain to his readers and to us what life is like in this age. In this age, his life is one long, continuous trial of his outer self, by which he does mean his his body. But those bodily trials do not erase the fact that his inner self is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. So it's very important that we understand what Paul means when he says his outer self was was suffering in, in this way. Um, The ESV says his outer self is wasting away, but don't think wasting away in Margaritaville, okay? That's not what he means by this. He's not looking for a lost shaker of salt. In fact, 
I, I would argue that wasting away is probably not strong enough here um, when you look at the underlying word, because the underlying word refers to a person's body being destroyed. He's not merely talking about getting old and dying. He's talking about getting beaten. He's talking about being whipped. He's talking about being stoned and starved and worse for the sake of the ministry. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm out here every day and I'm getting destroyed. When was the last time you tried to share your faith with someone and they got so mad at you that they began to beat you in the face with their fists as hard as they could? That happened to Paul. When's the last time you proclaimed the word of God and your listeners bound your arms and your legs and horsewhipped you on your bare back until you bled? When was the last time you stood to read scripture and an angry mob surrounded you sneering and crashed stones into your skull until they were quite certain that you were dead? When Paul says his outer self was being destroyed, that's what he's talking about. These people are trying to kill him. And yet he says, I don't lose heart. I don't get discouraged from the ministry, the very ministry that's causing me all of this pain. Although my outer self is being destroyed, my inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul's saying that even though his outward renewal hasn't begun yet, there is a time when his broken and beaten body is going to be transformed and made new. It will be indestructible. Even though that hasn't started yet, his inner transformation by the Holy Spirit has already begun. Instead of losing his heart and his courage, he gets up every day and looks death in the face with his strength renewed and his spirit resolved to run the race with vigor that God has given him. So when Paul speaks of this kind of renewal, he uses the language of renewal elsewhere. He says that it's a renewal of the mind in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2. Titus 3, 5, he says, it comes by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He says in Colossians 3.10 that we are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created. And you'll notice in all of those, in all of those instances of renewal, they're inward realities and they're wrought by the Holy Spirit. They're present, not future. They're happening now in the life of every believer and they're happening inside of Paul. And it's what's making Paul able to get up after they stone him to the ground. And so Paul is saying that the most important thing about him, the most important thing about him is not the pummeling of his body that any and every person who's looking at him could see with their eyes. The most important thing about him is that he has the spirit of Christ. 
He's saying, I have the spirit of Christ in me, changing me, remaking me, taking my heart of stone, making it into a heart of flesh, giving me a taste for eternal things, setting my desires on good things, transforming me into the image of Christ. That's the most important thing about me. And no matter what they throw at me, they can't stop my renewal. And they can't stop my renewal because they can't stop God. He's the one doing the work. It is God who is at work in me to act in the will according to his good pleasure. God is taking my dead, dull heart and making it alive to the things of God. He's forming in me something so beautiful and so glorious that if you could see it, you would have to cover your eyes. That's the most important thing about me. Not this bleeding, bruised, lacerated flesh that you're looking at. And I would suggest to you this, brothers and sisters, that this is also the most important thing about you. And the most important struggle in your life is to see and to feel and to know that this is true. Because the devil and your flesh are trying to derail you by getting you to fixate on your pain rather than on his pleasure in forming Christ in you. I don't think there's probably anybody in this room that's facing the kind of physical pain and threat that Paul faced. There are plenty of people in this room who know what it feels like to be afflicted in your outer self. If you have a body, you know what this is like in some measure. And the older you get, the worse it seems to get. And the issues just pile up. I've, I've talked about this before here in, in church, but many of you know that about eight years ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I was not happy about this diagnosis, a disease in my bones. I was really hoping that I could somehow uh, manage it without having to get on the, the meds that people usually have to get on to manage it. But my doctor told me if I didn't take the medication, I, I would have to go on disability. And he turned out to be really right about that because when I was untreated, the disease came on into my body like a flood. All my joints and my fingers and my hands and my wrists, my toes, my ankles, my elbow, it, it felt like all of it was just expanding and exploding. There were whole days, I, all I could do was just sit in my chair, in my living room. I couldn't do anything. It, if I hobbled to the car to drive somewhere, I could barely put the the seatbelt on. I remember one time, I like to lift weights. I remember one time going down to my, my uh, basement and I thought, I'm, I'm going to see what happens if I try to lift this, it, lift this weight. And it was like somebody was sawing on my joints. I, I couldn't move it. Now, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, we live in a time now, thankfully, that there's treatments for RA. My dad had RA and the treatments that we have now, he didn't have. And he had a lot worse, worse struggles. But ever since then, I've been on these powerful drugs that suppress my immune system because my immune system attacks my joints. And the, these drugs keep that from happening. That's why, in fact, that we're, the Burks, if you've noticed, have been real careful about COVID because it's mainly because of me. But I'm doing fine now. And I, I, I'm not looking for, for sympathy here. But I'm trying to tell you that the longer you live, you're going to discover, like I have, 
that your outer self is wasting away. You're going to feel it in your bones. And nothing has made me more aware of the fact that my outer self is wasting away than RA. And that's just one thing. The older you get, the more the issues just seem to, to pile up. And some of you here have faced and are facing far more difficult bodily conditions than I've faced and anything that I've described. For some of you, your struggles are every bit as painful as anything I've described, if not more so. And for some of you, your struggles are perhaps even life-threatening. But no matter where your affliction weighs in on the pain or threat scale, the message that God's word wants us to see and to hear clearly is this. Although my outer self is being destroyed, my inner self is being renewed day by day. No matter what our pain or our disease may be, nothing can stop God's purpose to form Christ in us. He's not going to leave us. He is not going to forsake us. He is going to walk with us all the way through. And no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Even if we die, yet shall we live. How do we know this? Because even though our outer self is being destroyed, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is a good news word for us. You can take comfort little child of God because you are quite safe no matter what you feel you are safe and no matter what's threatening your body you are safe and Paul is drawing all of this from the inward glory in verse 16 that even though he he knows and feels that his outer self is wasting away his inner Self is being renewed day by day. So the inward glory is verse 16, but look at the future glory in verse 17. He says this, For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's setting down here two parallel expressions that are absolutely crucial for us to grasp. The meaning of these two expressions will probably be easier for us to understand if I, if I translate them a little more literally. The two phrases are momentary lightness of affliction and eternal weight of glory. Momentary lightness of affliction and eternal weight of glory. And Paul is setting them next to each other and he's trying to get you to stare at the contrast for a moment. And the contrast is pretty clear, isn't it? Affliction refers to Paul's present bodily pain. Glory is referring to his glorification, which is his ultimate resurrection from the dead. After his body dies, God will raise his body up, and it will be a glorious body. That's glorification. That's the resurrection from the dead. Affliction is referring to what's going to kill his body. Glory refers to what is going to make his body come to life again. The affliction is momentary. The glory is eternal. The affliction is light. The glory is heavy. If you put your present bodily pain on one side of the scale 
and you put future bodily glory on the other side of the scale, the glory side is so heavy, it's going to break the scale. It's like putting a blade of grass on one side of the scale and all of Mount Everest on the other side of the scale. There really isn't even a scale big enough to weigh those two in the balance. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans 8, 18, that the sufferings of the present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul is weighing things here. He is asking you to look at your life, to look at the suffering in your life, to look at the suffering in the lives of those around you, to look at the pain of this world, and he's asking you to weigh it in the balance and to get the balance right. I don't know about you, but I've found the past seven days to be quite heavy. A lot of people that we know and love have have been going through pain and distress in their lives. A week ago Thursday, I got into bed a little after 1 a.m. And uh, a little bit after that is when I got an email from Johnson Pang, former member here at Kenwood Baptist Church. He was one of our, our pastoral interns. We've been praying for Johnson and his wife, Emily, and for their little boy, Timmy. They've been caring for him. He's had so many difficulties. And on Thursday, the Lord took Timmy home. Their hearts are broken. It's heavy. Tuesday afternoon, Susan and I received word that our neighbor, the boy that played in our yard with our kids all these years, we've watched him grow up. He's 11th grade, took his own life. Behind our how they live behind us. We got the news, our hearts were in our stomachs. We went over and sat in the living room and just cried with the mom and what do you do? It's heavy. We were all horrified to see the news of the killings in Atlanta on Tuesday. And sometimes these things can seem very remote. But here you have eight people killed. And as the details came out about how this happened, it was even more horrific. It was Thursday, two days later, I finally read a, a very detailed account, and it was horrifying. Can you imagine what families are going through? That is heavy. To make matters worse, we found out the killer was a professing Christian who went to a Southern Baptist church in that community. Thursday, we found out that one of our former members is a minister at that church. That church is just as horrified as all of us are by the killings. And yet they have, in the midst of everything they're going through, they've been slandered and accused of somehow that their teaching led to all of this. It's your fault, you Christians. You did this because of what you believe. And there are other heavy tidings from the last week that I, I won't mention. 
But perhaps this is enough to communicate the seeming unbearable weight of pain that a single week can produce in this cursed world. And yet Paul is saying, whatever your affliction is, no matter how heavy your burden is, whether it be the crushing grief of having to bury a child or the unspeakable grief over a murdered loved one, or the writhing dismay of being hated so much that you must bear the baseless accusations of a sneering mob. No matter how heavy the burden is, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For those with with eyes to see, all of that weight will be like a blade of grass when weighed against the mountain of mercy that God intends to pour out on us. When every hot and creaky joint is finally worked out, when every dreaded disease is drowned finally in the abyss, and every tear is wiped away, when we all see each other again anew, more glorious and glad than we ever were here, more glorious and glad than we could have dared to imagine. When God finally gathers all his little children together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, we will look back at the weight of this past week and all the other weeks like it, and we will say that was like a blade of grass. So light. Light as a feather. Somebody might say, well, that that sounds really nice. Denny, some good preachers speak. You have a wonderful imagination. You should write greeting cards. The pain I'm going through, however, is very real and very heavy. And it doesn't feel very light right now. And I want to say to you, you're right. It doesn't. Your pains are real and they don't feel light. You cry real tears, you carry real burdens, and they are indeed at times very difficult to lift. But what the Word of God is trying to tell you and to tell me is that your real feelings can obscure the real world that God has made and his real plans to give you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And you can't, at the end of the day, measure reality by your feelings, by your current pain, by your current dismay. You're going to have to measure reality by what is and by what God has said. And whether it feels like it or or not right now, the most important thing about you is not your pain and your affliction. It's the eternal weight of glory that God is planning for you. God help us. God help us to see this. If you look carefully at this text, you'll notice something very crucial that I I skipped over. In verse 17, he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
I talked about the two phrases, but I didn't tell you how the two phrases relate one to the other. Did you notice that the text says that the affliction produces the glory? Well, how does that work? How does affliction produce glory? This is God's world. Everything in God's world has to serve God's ends. That means your affliction included. God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Your affliction works for God's purposes in your life. Paul says in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is using your sufferings to help you not to trust in what you see with your eyes, but to trust in what you cannot yet see with your eyes, but what you will one day see with your eyes. When you suffer that way, Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will grow in endurance and in character and in hope, which means you will be growing towards that glory that is to come. Why is that? Because you know that God is working all things together for good for you. So we say again, you little child of God, you are quite safe. Paul speaks to the inward glory. He speaks to the future glory. Finally, he speaks to the unseen glory in verse 18. Everyone look at verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now notice that verse 18 begins with a clause that's dependent on verse 17. So verse 18 is telling us how we can realize the truth of verse 17. If you want verse 17 to come true for you, if you want affliction to produce glory for you, it will come true for you as you were doing verse 18. It will come true for you as you are looking not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. That means that you cannot fixate on the affliction if the affliction is to produce glory in you. You've got to fixate on the one who's going to be bringing the glory to you. You've got to be fixating on the one who has already been raised from the dead and who will indeed raise you from the dead. You have to do what Paul says in chapter 1. You remember this? Chapter 1 and verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Thought he was going to die, right? We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul could see the threats to his life. That was clear. Could see that with his, his eyes. But could you not see at that moment with your eyes? Jesus, the one who's risen, standing at the right hand of the Father, is raised, the guarantee, the firstborn 
among many brethren is unseen. How is the affliction going to produce glory for you? You've got to be looking at the unseen. The affliction is designed to kick the props out from under you so that you will no longer be able to trust in whatever temporal things that you are trusting in. Because we tend to fixate on the seen things. The affliction will produce glory in you as you look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Why is that? Because the seen things are temporary and light. The unseen things are weighty and eternal. Which means you have to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. How did he endure the cross, despise its shame? For the joy set before him, fixing his eyes on the unseen things. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that, keeping his eyes on the unseen prize, carried him all the way to glory. You have to keep your eyes on that unseen prize to carry, for that prize to carry you to glory. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As I mentioned earlier, we've all been praying for little Timmy Pang here for the last three years. He died last week just shy of his third birthday. Yesterday, I watched and listened to the live stream of his funeral. If you haven't watched that, it's still online. I encourage you to go watch and to listen, and especially to listen to the eulogy that's been given by Timmy's father, Johnson. could hardly believe that he was actually able to stand up there and do that, but he did it at times through tears. But all the way through with clarity and conviction and with love for his son. Um, One thing that stuck out to me was that the centerpiece of his eulogy was not their family's pain. It was little Timmy's life and what Timmy went through. He talked about three years ago when he and Emily found out that the baby that she was carrying was going to have significant problems The doctors told him there was almost no chance that he would be viable outside of the womb. His organs weren't forming correctly, and they were keeping his little lungs from growing and developing. The doctors, however, also told them that there was an experimental surgery that the FDA was studying that might help him, but that treatment was only available at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Maryland. The Pangs live in California. So this was going to be difficult. This kind of surgery, it's an intrauterine surgery. Going to, could be complications with it. You're going to have to, you know, mama's going to have to stay there until baby's born after that. So they couldn't just make a visit to Maryland for a surgery. They would have to move there. 
to give Timmy any chance at life. And so they prayed together and knew that if there were any other, if this were any of their other children, they would do whatever they needed to do to make it happen. And so they decided to do that for, for Timmy. They dropped everything. They left their home. They left their life in California and they moved to Maryland to be close to a hospital to give Timmy a fighting chance to live. And that's where they've been for the last two years and 10 months. And Johnson said the last three years have been the most difficult years of their lives. Timmy had so many problems and, and was in the NICU for so long after he was finally born. And, and Johnson said that after Timmy died, he and Emily, they, they had a hard time imagining what a funeral service would look like because his life was so filled the whole of his life was so much pain. He was put, I, I, I was, it was staggering to listen to this, but he said that shortly after he was born, he was immediately put on heart and lung bypass. Within 12 hours of being born, he had, he had a stroke and suffered many seizures in the course of his short life. He had six surgeries, including four abdominal surgeries, one open heart surgery and a, tra a tracheostomy. Hundreds of x-rays, countless other procedures. And after Johnson goes through all of this, he says, I'm not telling you this because I want sympathy from you. I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I want to honor Timmy for what he's endured. Johnson shared that one of the most devastating events of Timmy's life occurred when he was finally set to be discharged from the ICU. He'd been there for like 50 weeks and it was a big deal for the whole hospital that he was going to leave. And it was joyous and highly anticipated. He said it was like a reverse parade. The hospital staff lined the halls and they, they wheeled him out. And they had planned a day to go to Mount Washington to be with him. And uh, they, they took him there to Mount Washington and, and were with Timothy. And he was alert and uh, happy and... Um, they didn't know that that was the last time that they would see him like that again. That very night, he was sent back to the hospital. He got, in 2019, he got a coronavirus. And his little system had a severe response, and it went to his brain, and he was severely incapacitated. He was put back in the ICU, which put his time in the ICU, I think, over 60 weeks at that point. They eventually were able to bring him home, but as the months went on, any hope of his cognitive or motor development slowly faded. And Johnson and Emily and the kids had to face the hard truth that the smiling Timothy that they knew was gone. And Johnson said it was a devastating turn of events in their lives. And after describing the weight of suffering that Timmy had to bear and the grief that the family was enduring over these years, Johnson asks this question. He says, what are we to make of his life? What are we to make of my son's really short, painful life? And then he turned to the Bible. To the words of Jesus. John 9, verses 2 and 3. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, 
Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Johnson just began to share. He just began to bear witness about the works of God through Timmy's life, about the works of God in his own life, how Timmy's life had meaning and how precious it was to God. He bore witness about how Timmy had made him a better man to be able to love more, to endure more, to be patient more, to be sweeter more. Then Johnson preached the gospel that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. And he died and was raised. And he's alive now. And anybody can have him if you just believe in him. All this medical staff from Johns Hopkins came to the funeral. And Johnson's preaching the gospel, the whole unvarnished truth to him. And his hope, his hope in God was so evident. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It was glory. And I'll say this, Johnson's witness in that moment to me was more weighty and heavy and full than any of the blades of grass of this last week. I had the real feeling that I was looking at a man who had been pummeled in his outer man, but whose inner man had been renewed. I got the real sense that I was looking at a man whose momentary light affliction had been working an eternal weight of glory in him and in Emily. The real sense that this was a man whose eyes were not on the seen things, but on the unseen things. Because nothing else in his seen world was worth trusting in. This was a man who had learned through pain the difference between the mud pie in the slum and the holiday at the sea. This was not an ordinary man. This was a servant of the high king Jesus. At the end of his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, and I'm just going to read you one final thing. Lewis says, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is in fact the merriest kind. Which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority. No presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love. With deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself in him is truly Christ hidden. Let me pray. Our Father, we bow our knees before you. The one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.